This episode, you meet Steve Fry, retired Air Force Colonel, current GS Director, still going strong. He uh, is noteworthy for several several reasons. <laughs> At least as a cadet, he uh, he's the guy that can fill in the gaps on why one of our classmates left after a couple months because he and that classmate were duallys together. Steve also had his girlfriend from high school show up uh, sometime that first uh, year at the in the Pinks, and Jennifer became kind of the den mother for all of us clowns, and they are still together today. That's a that's a really cool story. The uh, upon graduation, Steve went off to fly uh, as a pilot instructor initially, and then C-141s, where he had some great adventures. He shares with us on this on this broadcast. Steve uh, was being groomed for upper level command. In the Air Force, he'll get into that story, but he is currently a uh, civilian GS and still going uh, and, and doing some of the great things he does for this country. Hope you guys enjoy this. Steve, thanks for uh, being part of this. We, uh, I always like to start off by asking what was your, uh, what's your message to the incoming class, the current cadets, the recent grads, and the old goats like us? Goats meaning greatest of all time, right? <laughs> however, however you want to put that. All right. I would say just up front, live the honor code and the Air Force Corps values, If you, obviously, are the values if you go into another service. But, you know, our integrity is, is top notch, our service before self and excellence in all we do. And as the second part of that, I would say take on the challenges If the commander needs you to do something or especially opportunities um, to lead or to solve problems that he needs or she needs solved. And third would be. Uh, link up with a mentor, whether it's a senior officer or not in your command chain or, and a senior enlisted that's an expert in what you, what you guys are going to be doing. Um, all of those things will pay off throughout, throughout your career and afterwards. Interesting. So did you have any mentors that you uh, recall when, while you were a cadet? Not as a cadet, no. Um, uh, <laughs> That I didn't call him that then. Uh, for example, the first week of after we got there on July 2nd, that, that that's sometime that next week, um, a firstie from that was from my same hometown here came by the room and he was I think he was a group commander at the time. So he's in full dress uniform with his saber. And, and I go, he introduced himself and he goes, do you know my name? I said, I know your name, but I, I've never met you. And he goes, well, welcome. It's going to be tough. You know, the society is changing because we're going to an all volunteer force and all this stuff. And but he says, you know, hang in there. If you ever need anything, let me know. Wow. So, yeah, it was it was that was, a, you know, the first week there when you're getting head shaved and yelled at um, for everything and you don't know anybody around you for something like that to come in and kind of pep you up. It was it was important. I said, that's what's important to people as, as they go through tough times um, in their lives. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so what got you there in the first place? Cause I know everybody has a little different path to get to the Academy. What, what got you there? Um, <laughs> I was a small town person going to a, Catholic elementary school and I went to the public school when we moved and my junior year in high school my dad got his private pilot license and so we started to go up you know going to places he had his own business uh, building basically building gas stations and 
fuel oil trucks and those kinds of things. And that's where I worked in the summers and on the weekends, um, learning to do a whole bunch of things from laying cinder blocks to woodworking to threading pipe and just good things that I would <laughs> do actually throughout the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> but, but I went with him and I went, it was the bug that bit me. You know, it was like, this is really neat. Where can I go fly? And, you know, it was like the county airport was a couple miles from our house. And they, and so that's where he rented airplanes to fly. And so I asked them and they said, well, you need 1500 hours to go to the airlines. And they, you know, just stuff yeah. from 1970 or so. And uh, so I talked to the guidance counselor at, at the high school in my junior year. And he says, uh, well, there is the Air Force Academy. I said, well, what's that? <laughs> Others have said the same thing. I go, okay. And so I looked that up with the, the pamphlet he had there. And uh, the, the local congressman happened to have a fuel oil delivery business. Uh, and and I so I knew the name. It was it was Schnabley, and I go, oh, I know that name. And uh, so my dad said, well, I'll ask what you have to do. And he did. He just asked him. And he says, yeah, you got to fill all all this stuff. And I was one of the ten nominees that he had in his his uh, basket. And uh, this uh, reserve captain came over that was a assistant basketball coach at a local high school. I said, I know you from this and that. And he goes, yeah, well, I'm here to talk to you about this. We need to finalize this and uh, we'll turn everything in and the, and, the, and the representative will make a decision. I got a letter, I don't know, maybe member of junior year said, you have an appointment to the Air Force Academy. Wow, junior year. So, junior year. I had already gotten a... Um, a scholarship to Purdue uh, for for uh, engineering. Yeah, and jump ahead after our Christmas of our Dooley year when we came back, my mom called me and said, "So and so called from Purdue and said, I guess Stephen is not going to be coming here to Purdue, <laughs> is he?" <laughs> she said, "No, as far as I know, he's going to stay at the Air Force Academy." So, <laughs> that's too short to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. So, so I mean, I, I know the first year is really rough for most of us. Um, did you have any standout events? Well, first one, I, what would you ask about doing this? The first one that came to mind was our, our, our beast summer in the first part where, you know, you'd always have to scramble to get out of there and get in line to march to noon for me to the noon meal. And, um, for some reason, there were two Higgins on the the list in our squ squadron. Oh my! And they only ever listed one on the table assignments. <laughs> so, so and we always lined up by height, and I'm like Roger and others. I'm five six, and so we're in we're in the back, and we come in and. Uh, um, go to our tables and I'd get to the table and there's no seat because both Higgins were there. <laughs> that went on for three weeks. No matter what I said to the flight commander, I go, would you please add a Higgins, the other Higgins somewhere? And I think that to me, looking back on it after the first year was 
that's the kind of challenges we're going to have to face and deal with them, whether you think it's a setback or a pain in the butt to, to go report to the table commandant, find another table that has a seat at it, report to the table commandant, and always answer the question, well, why aren't you at your table? <laughs> there, there's no good answer. Sorry, right. I do not have a table. <laughs> Well, I, I'm trying to remember. I didn't like going to the meal hall after a while because you weren't getting any food. They were yelling at you the whole time. <laughs> That's true. Um, and figuring out the O-96 and the way they, uh, yeah. I just love doing that. So, yeah, that, that one stood out. Um, and I had been wrestling in high school and tennis and stuff. So, you know, it was try out for something. I, I, I went to the second round of the tennis cuts and then got dropped from that so i said well let me try wrestling and so they pulled me in um put me on the list to, as a freshman in the wrestling program and that led to the whole hey we get to be on tables and not get yelled at but we can't eat because we gotta make weight so what a, <laughs> what a dilemma so you're so, on the ramps but you're still not eating anything <laughs> right. neither is anybody else but we're there yeah. telling the stories so well, the other guys, the fencers and baseball guys were getting the eat or not. Wow. Oh, the football guys were the worst. I mean, yeah. they were on their tables all, you know, they had spring ball and fall ball and yeah, they were always there. But, you know, that that kind of stuff stood out. And, and the first year, I mean, I was <laughs> the second thing that I thought of thinking about listening to a couple of these other guys was uh, I did the best I could on the placement tests. So, I'm nearly maxed out validating chemistry and nearly maxed out French and this and that. So I got put in these three different classes where it was one semester of it to be done with that requirement. Okay. <laughs> and I got in there and I went, I am so far. I'm the last guy in both these classes. <laughs> Lucky Dunn was in there and he was, oh, you know, you know, <laughs> I go, this is the kind of people that came to the academy can I change to the basic French and the basic chemistry? And they said, no, you're good. You'll be fine. Okay. <laughs> but, but it just, it's back to my original thing. This is the challenges we face and the way to work through them is, is what you're going to do your whole career. Um, so I got through it and it was uh, organic chemistry was very much. And after the first year and a half, I went, I don't want to be a chemistry major. So I switched to math. Which was a pretty challenging topic also. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you fast forward, and a lot of it was um, ops research and, and uh, the Burroughs 7700 and all the computer programming and learning Fortran and, and the rest of that stuff. But, you know, that's ancient stuff, but it, it makes you think logically and critically and, and puts things together. And um, we, we our project in our... I guess it was the winter of our senior year. I'm jumping a little ahead, but yeah. was to build the the uh, algorithm, the program that would allow all the pilot qualified cadets to do their priorities. And we would come up with an optimum solution that said, these people should go here. These people should go here against the quotas at each of the pilot training bases. I think there were six or seven bases at the time. And uh, and where, you know, based on their preferences and it came down to an optimal solution with three variants, you know, it was 
you, you, this person would get their second choice, this person would get their third choice. It, you know, but it was really, really very good. So huh. part, part of that was a bunch of us signed up to go to Del Rio. I was going to say, part of it was to make sure Steve <laughs> Fry and his buddies got to go where they wanted to go. <laughs> we didn't know that at the time, but, you know, we, we, uh, they said it worked really, really well. So they wanted us to work on the next thing, which was uh, a 26 variable or some number like that, uh, variable uh, program to properly select cadets to come to the academy. Oh, wow. Um, because at the time, the two main things that got you in the academy were, were, were uh, class standing from high school graduation and um, sort of like an order of merit right. and your grade point average. There really wasn't any other stuff. There were mention of physical, you know, sports and, yeah. you know, awards. And I mean, they were all on that. 20 plus page application but they really weren't rated very high those two things were, and we go they said we need to expand that and we didn't now we we laid the foundation for that but classes behind us finished it i don't know when they implemented it but they ended up implementing it well i remember sat was a big deal too yep what uh one of the mysteries for for the guys who are from pink panther 36 76 is uh we had one guy who quit almost immediately in our sophomore year. So we don't really consider him ever a pink Panther, but as I was doing some research, I think you were duallys with this guy, a guy named Rich Polemi. Do you know this? Yeah. Do you remember yes. all and yeah. what, what happened? Yeah. I can still smell the smoke. Yes. The what? The, the pot. Oh God. Is that what happened? Yeah. He was outside on the, uh, the squadron down in the stairwell and somebody came in from another squadron as a very senior cadet. And I don't know if they were walking with an AOC or somebody else, but they smelled it. And then they followed him up to the room and they go, what are you doing? And that's about all I know is all of a sudden he was gone. <laughs> so he didn't quit either. <laughs> he did. Well, yes, he did. But they okay. said, do you, do you want us to press these charges or do you want to resign? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Good old Rich. Yeah. But I, I would say the in the first year I was in fifth squadron and for some reason I became the guy several people came to after Thanksgiving and after Christmas going, should I stay? Mm. And, and and one of them stands out was was a, <laughs> he, he had made it to Christmas and. First name, John. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. And he goes, I would rather go. So I want to be a doctor, but I'd rather go somewhere for three years and get my bachelor's, then go into med school and do that rather than this. Oh, well, if that's really what you want to do and you, th you know, that's what you should do. And he explained that to the AOC and, and he left. He was no hard feelings. Yeah. Turns out. I think he went to Tulane with Lucky Dunn and others. Is that where John Dedick went? I yeah. Think. Yeah. Um, well, they went to to med school at various times down there, and John finished, and he goes, "I really like the Air Force," so he comes back into the Air Force as a doctor, as a captain, makes it up through colonel, and when I'm at bowling as the the um, 
vice commander of 38,000 people. He's, he's the medical director for the Pentagon clinic and a senior guy within the, um, the wing itself. And I go, I know you. (laughs) (laughs) He was because of his position. He was the, the secretaries and the chief of staff's doctor and traveled with them and all this. And I'll tell you, I said, I need a meeting with you to find out what, and he went through his career and what he was doing and all, you know, I was, it was really neat to see that he found his passion and then he came back, brought it back to the air force. Yeah. No, that that's, that's an interesting deal. Well, then they made the 06 position that he was in a GS 15 and hired him into it. (laughs) (laughs) So up until, Two years ago, he was still in the position. Wow. So um, you said you were the kind of a grounded person that the other guys came to. Did you ever think of quitting? No, I don't. I don't think I did. I, I wanted to fly. I said, I, um, I mean, I was decent physical shape and I was on the wrestling team. I may try to, you know, keep up with the standards of all that. Um, the academics were challenging, but, you know, it, 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 you had to apply yourself and the fact that we got I talked to people now and I said yeah we got like 225 credits in the four years and they went what yeah. that's, twi- that's twice as money as the high end people get now and I said well now you got to count the summer stuff and the training And but yeah we were taking typically seven six courses in the fall and seven courses in the spring or seven of each and they were two and a half hour or three hour credits I go they kept us hopping. Yeah, no, I, so, I remember it was a manhole concept. Just open you up and throw as much in as you can stomach. Don't say the nickel at a time. No, 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 no. But it was the manhole instead of the hole. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I, uh, and then I, I know the the pressure relief for me and for a lot of folks was uh, the insanity club known as the Pink Panthers. What was that like for you going over to that cast of characters? Um. The more I think back on it, it it was the changing from a fourth degree to a third degree was this is going to be panacea. Yeah, you know, it's a, it, and and it wasn't. Um, yes, they were good people. They were studying. They were struggling with academics, and I tried to help when I could. <laughs> but I was made the appointments office or whatever. You know, I was supposed to make sure that people got notified if they had a dental appointment and whatever it was, yeah, a doctor's appointment. So I don't know if I was there a month and I posted the, the notice on the first degrees door. It was right by the stairwell. Like it was there. We had an appointment at like eight the next morning and he knew about it and he slept in. And so, so, so did he get in trouble for missing the appointment? No, I got in trouble for not making sure he got there. I said, is that, is that how this works? So I was rated next to last of all the Pink Panthers because I couldn't do the simple duty of appointments officer. So it, it didn't start out well, but once we got to, we went skiing in a group of different things, you know, all of that. And uh, I finally um, Jen had said uh, she would wait for me because we couldn't be married to right. get married after the academy. And so um, as I approached 
Christmas time, I'm in the chem lab, of course, um, and USAA was having specials on diamond rings. So I online ordered, it wasn't online, but it was a phone call, um, ordered this ring and had it shipped to my PO box at the academy. So I had it with me in my pocket and I'm showing these guys <laughs> in the chem lab. I go, I think I can clean it here and things like that. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm proposing to her. So I proposed to her on Christmas Eve and she said yes. And so after that, it was like, I'm not even thinking about quitting. Yeah. You know, the, the way ahead God's laid out for me, I, th I think is the right one. Is that when she, uh, the, then when did she show up in Colorado? I think that was the, uh, the key point for her to explain to her parents <laughs> that, that going to live, my sister lived there in Colorado Springs. She's okay. a year younger than me. So she said she needed a roommate. I forget who left, but she needed a roommate. And Jen offered to live with her in a, in a two bedroom apartment there, right back on Academy Boulevard was partially a dirt road at the, yeah. passing the gas station. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so she moved there and I don't remember exactly when it was not long after that engagement, a couple of months or so and lived there for almost two years. Um, and then she moved back to her mom's and dad's house and uh, here in Pennsylvania right after Christmas of our senior year so she could prepare everything because we were going to get married in, in our church in Pennsylvania. Oh, cool. Not not in the chapel. So she got all that lined up and I just showed up, put the ring on. Well, for those of you listening in, this was a big deal for our squadron that we kind of had like, I, I, I'll say the phrase den mother, but basically Jennifer was the, one of the sanity people that we could talk to and she would she would bless or... Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on girls we would introduce her to and <laughs> she was just really uh, not really a mom not really a sister but definitely a, a pal and, and the fact that she had a legal car for us to borrow and, and ride around with Steve it was great it was fantastic <laughs> and, and she constantly invited them any of the, the team the Pink Panthers to come to the apartment if they needed anything and feed them and all that kind of stuff so yeah, that was yeah. fantastic. She greatly appreciated and still does all the the positive comments you you guys passed on. Well, and she, of course, I I asked her if she then would want to go to the academy because the women were starting the year <laughs> as we left, and she goes, "Absolutely not! I don't want a congressional mandate that says you outrank me." That <laughs> says what? That she, that I would outrank her. Oh, okay, yeah. No, web plus the yeah, after watching this the trauma that we all went through, she probably doesn't want to get too close to that stuff. Um, so did you get involved in any of the uh stunts that we did, or were you pretty bit pretty serious about the academics and, and stuff? I would say it was the latter. I, I mean, some of the stuff, yeah, I went along with whether it was a rally for this or that, but I didn't, I don't remember putting any of the officer of the days pants on the flagpole or any of that kind of stuff I, I just i just know what happened um and harboring fugitives was part of the deal you know if somebody came running down and needed to jump in your room you could certainly do that but no i i wasn't nearly as into the annex as, as jimmy doe and greg and kai 
And were, did yeah. you uh Baron were you involved in the uh the quarantine when we got food poisoning? I do not remember that. I don't remember okay. get, getting any kind of sickness um at all. That's good. That you probably did not have to go to Alvarez's party that night then. <laughs> Him I remember cuz he told us how he had to go to the bathroom and he was sitting at the end of the runway and he couldn't do it. He couldn't go back. He had to go in his suit. So I go, is that how we fly in this air force? I go, <laughs> that's and then, <laughs> and then major Wilcox was, was the next one. You know, he, he just a completely different attitude from a, from a support officer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I he and I did not click very well, but that, that, that's a different deal. I, I was not exactly a stellar cadet, so I can understand why I would not be somebody you would get along with. What was so, your what, room number? I don't remember. Room number? I have no idea. Because we would always say there's always hope in 3C96 or whatever the number was. <laughs> that was, you know, if you needed anything, you could go. There's always hope there. Yeah, that's right. The squadron was not hopeless there. Never. So what did you do in your summers? At the academy, yeah. Um, let's see. The first one was uh, our survival, and then I did soaring. I never did go to Benning or freefall. Yeah. So I've never jumped out of a perfectly good airplane or any other. Um, and then I think the next year was um, third lieutenant was at Reese. In Texas, so rides in T-37s and T-38s, and I kind of got, I got a laugh at that. We're, we're sitting in the T-38 briefing room, and the, the whole class is there, and uh, the flight cap, the, the flight commander is a captain, and he's observing, and he has been just talking to me about what it is in pilot training and what his instructors do and what the students do. And then he goes, well, come on to the briefing. And I come to the briefing, and I'm sitting there. And um, you, you had a pilots will understand this and even navigators that um, you have it. You have a checklist, but you also quite often have an in-flight guide that may have local procedures. It may have other things. Well, they ask a question about if you were flying your this was a T-38 and you had a canopy and a, a engine bird strike. OK. But you didn't lose the engine and the canopy didn't crack. You still have full control of the airplane. What do you do? <laughs> and I mean, they started with the right thing. You maintain the control, you report it, you know, you start your way back and stuff. And and I'm looking at the in-flight guidance says bird strike procedures. I'm just looking at it. And it was one of the things that you kept in mind, like my dad taught me, when you're flying locally, there's a lot of birds around us. And so... Nobody was answering. <laughs> I put my paw up and he goes, uh, yes, cadet fry. <laughs> I go, well, this in-flight guy gives you the whole seven steps for the bird strike. And they all look at me like, shut up. <laughs> so I go, and I learned later that my four-star boss down at Southcom, he, I didn't tell him that story, but he said, you have to have moral courage. You have to know when you know the answer and nobody's speaking up that you need to be willing to speak up. And as I looked back at that, I went, I've got a few of those in my past. When you when you tell, you know, the emperor he doesn't have any clothes, you better be right. 
obviously, but you got to have the courage to tell them. Yep. That, that, that is definitely something that we, uh, I think throughout these uh, different interviews, everybody has, uh, their BS factor goes way up and they, they won't stand for it <laughs> for and yeah. how we express that, uh, is different personality wise. Sometimes it works out for the guy. Sometimes it doesn't, but uh, yeah, Yeah. it's pretty pretty important. Yeah. And, and I think the, uh, the next summer was, I think the T41 training was like five or six weeks. So I happened to have leave first and then that, and I was supposed to just be able to take another week of leave after. It's pretty much they had it set up that way for most folks. Um, so I w- it was like, I think it was Friday, Thursday or Friday. And they didn't have enough um, instructors or aircraft, I don't remember which, to finish my check ride. So they said, we're going to have to schedule it for Monday. Okay. I wasn't going anywhere. Huh. So... That Friday, I'm back in the dorm room, wherever the summer dorms were, and uh, I get this knock on the door and, hey, we need to take you to the, whatever the storage room was that they had locked up all summer where you put all your stuff from the room in. And you need to get your um, field gear out, uh, your fatigues and this and that. You're, You're going out to Jack's Valley to be an instructor with second beast <laughs> I went, what <laughs> I, I haven't finished t41 yet oh you were supposed to finish yesterday well I, I agree with you but i didn't well we're gonna get your stuff anyway i said it's all locked up and they go we have a key and so okay so they got i got all that stuff out of there and they handed me this little red book it said here's the way we train cadets and beast now none of this <laughs> dive down with your fork, you know, pick up your fork, you know, any of those things that we all did, you weren't allowed to do any of those anymore. Yeah. I said, I'm going to have a little trouble with this. But what I found out later is now I knew the program and stuff. So wind the clock up 20 years. And I had as a a investigate, what's it called? Safety board and accident board colonel. Um, I needed to go investigate a death at um, a cadet in his fourth week of basic training. Mm. And it had just been a year before that, that the Jacks Valley guy Schindler had died because he drank too much water. Mm. And it was, it was a very, very enlightening. And I, I reflect back and I went, you know, that's part of the reason they sent me out there to learn what the training involved and what people were going through and why they're mar- um, jogging in place with their rifle and screaming out names, you know, th- other things are going on in their body. And I just thought, you know, the way, the way things come full circle is something that we can express to all the younger folks in all of these stories. Oh yeah. It's, it's a, uh... I like to tell people it's a circular world that we're going around and come around and just keep your head on a swivel and you'll, you'll end up using stuff later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so, the senior, the senior year then when we, when we started, I mean, I had all the other normal jobs, sophomore and junior years for, uh, 
academics this and whatever they were. And uh, in senior year, um, Major Wilcox said, I got you in line to be a squadron commander. <clears throat> I said, okay. And I think it was Paul praying and Georgie. And it was like we were marching. Op- the evening meal was optional at the time. I forget what part of the season it was. And uh, it was, I don't know, February, March time frame. And uh, I was a flight commander. And the, um, how did he, he said something like, I need to, need to make sure you're there. I said, well, well, it's optional, right? And we have this, my fiance and this. And he goes, no, you need to be there. <laughs> I went, okay. And I was there, but I fussed about it. Yeah. And so he came back and he said, you have no duties, third, whatever it's called, trimester um, within the squadron. So I, I was the plane cadet captain graduating. I go, this is the way it is. Well, that, that like the academics, or excuse me, the appointments officer and a couple of other things that happened, I went, hmm, I'll show him. So pilot training, got the commander's trophy, came out first, got choice of assignment, all that stuff. So went to a football game. I think it was couple of years later i forget when it was i got to the 10-year reunion but i'm trying to remember what where because major wilcox showed up there at the game and i was sitting with uh with duncan mcnab and those 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 the a bunch of 74 people so um he goes oh congratulations uh lieutenant fry you you were the top in your class i said thank you and then thought, no thanks to you. But maybe it was thanks to him. Yeah, he's you know, a, here's a setback. You know, you better apply yourself. And there's some rules to follow. And, you know, service before self. I went, man. And we didn't have those core values at the time. But that's what it was. So you, you made it through Del Rio and your top, top grad. What area yep. did you pick? Or did they, did they let you pick your own plane? No. they came, <laughs> They came back and said, it's the T thirty seven squadron turn to get the first FAPE, and, and you're and you're it. Oh, great! So it was the eighty seventh squadron there, and the, and the lieutenant colonel commander says, "Congratulations, Steve!" But nobody was more surprised than him and my flight commander, because the way we did the assignments that year, um, we all came in in April into the room with our spouses. And they read off the names and their assignments. So I'll never forget this. Costa Asalanus. Okay. KC-135 Seymour Johnson. Okay. You know, next, next, next. Stephen Fry. T-37. You know, each time we stood up to hear it and then sat down. So I stood up. They go, T-37. And I just started to sit down because I knew it was going to be... Laughlin Air Force Base. They said, Columbus Air Force Base, Mississippi. <laughs> my flight commander and my, my, I don't think the wing commander was there, but the squadron commander for the 37s was there because he knew I was coming. And and he go, he looks at the guy, the flight commander announcing these things, the T-38 flight commander. He goes, are you sure that's right? Is that, you know, <laughs> is there a typo? Is Was that an error in the message? And he goes, no, sir. I called him, called the 
the center. I think it was AFMPC then, but called the center and, and confirmed that. And so I didn't know. I go, so Ben and I looked at each other. We're going to Mississippi? Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, we already had our first son in March of pilot training. And so we're going to move. Wow. Well, I get to, to Columbus. Well, I go I go via Randolph to be become a FAPE instructor, a first assignment instructor pilot. And um, there I find out that the Department of State negotiated with several governments and they have doubled what they call the Security Assistance Training Program, the SAT-P for um, uh, Kenya, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. So this is 1977 now. Wow. Those those cu- countries were sending a bunch of prospective pilots to pilot training, and they decided the U.S. government decided they would come because we closed. We were closing Craig, and we were closing another one, and they said those people will come to Columbus. Wow. And so all of a sudden, Columbus is 70% manned or something ridiculous. They said, we're sending two people from each graduating pilot training class this summer to Columbus to give them enough people. So I was I was one. And the, the next person that came from Del Rio wasn't from our class, but down the road he was. So we moved to Columbus to be instructors. And that's where I learned that Allah rules all. When you're flying and they can't do it, I guess it's my day to die. They would tell me, "Oh no, no, it's not. <laughs> let's let's do this." And then you had to come up with all your synonyms, you know, because if you wanted them to see a landmark to keep them in the area for the training or something, you, you know, something like uh, see that pond, lake, body of water. So one of them in the translation in their head would fit, and they know what you were talking about. We had uh, several Iranian uh, pilot uh, trainees in Pensacola when I was going through there. And the instructors that I would get to know the instructors on the Navy side, and they would call them migranians because they just gave them headaches all the time with the language. That's funny. So so the Iranian is what the what the phrase was back then and they, they just put an M in the front of it. That's pretty funny. Yeah, it's so true. Although the first couple of classes, these were these were primo people. I mean, I had two sons of princes as as students. You know, they they were gonna be somebody in their country. Yeah. Um but yeah. They, they I, were good I do. guys. I think that I think the major cultural difference between the average person in the U.S. getting into an airplane and the average guy from a foreign country is, the, at least in our in our era, the, the younger guys were all comfortable with cars and machinery and the and the foreigners weren't so, so as comfortable with that. Yeah. Well, they, they the classes were like, I'm going to say, three months apart. They would finish, they had a nine, maybe four months. It was a nine-month T-37 course instead of the U.S. five-month or so. Um so they had they would always have a senior and a junior class, if you will, and the senior class always did a great job of mentoring the new guys, and they were all men. There were no women that came through, and um, you could often 
one example. If you ask one of the students what item 53 on the before starting engines checklist was without looking, they'd quote it to you. Yeah. They had it memorized, but they the staples were still in their checklist. <laughs> they, they had memorized it because the senior class had made them, which yeah. was very, very beneficial, but not the optimum training. So you uh, finish up your Columbus tour and you get finally get into, quote unquote, the real Air Force. And how did you end up in C-141s? Let me, let me back up a minute and okay. say when when... Slim Connors and his wife and Greg and his first wife and well, I guess it was Slim's first wife too. Um, and I, we linked up together in Arlington, Virginia, and then caravan down and across Route 10. We, when we hit the Texas border after two days of driving, we went, all right, we're almost there. <laughs> we, the bio market was like 810. We went, oh my goodness, we got a whole nother day to go. And we were towing a boat and the boat trailer had a flat tire and it was just about dusk. So Greg's looking at it and it's on the side of the road of the interstate. And he forgot that that pile next to him was red fire ants. Oh no. And all of a sudden they're crawling up his leg, biting him. And we go, what's wrong? We thought the boat trailer fell on him or something. No, it was, it was the ants, but everybody was fine and we made it and went through the training. But um, when when it came time, I did all of every aircraft I've been in, I've been instructor, flight examiner. So um, and two of them, three of them, really formal school flight examiners as well. So so knowing that part of the business in uh, in the T-37 world, um, there were a couple of people obviously as flight instructors on the American side that said, here's what you do in B-52s. Here's what you do in tankers. Here's what you do in, you know, um, F-4s. Um, here's what you do in C-141s. And, and uh, a good friend of mine and my wife and his wife were very good friends, really, really wanted an F-16. I mean, he was, he was the, Knuckles dragging on the ground, fighter pilot kind of guy. <laughs> a really nice guy, but he really wanted one. Terry Isaacson's a lieutenant colonel. He's an all-American football player from the academy. And and I go into him and say, um, I'd really like to go to fighters. And he goes, well, I just heard that the October, November, um, they were doing blocks of assignments at the center every two months. October, November has no fighters. And the December, January has the first F-16 were given to a FAPE. I said, all right, because I was in the, Jan in the uh, December, January yeah. block. So was Daryl, the, the other guy. And no, he was, he was, yeah, he was in the same block. And, I, and he goes, how bad do you want it? <laughs> I go, well, I don't know anything about it. And, and Lieutenant Colonel Isaacson was, he knew a lot about it. And a guy named Frank Duco was, was in there. It was an F4 guy, was one of our fellow check section guys. And he goes, yeah, that's a, that's a heavy lead sled kind of airplane, but F16 is sounding like it's, it's, it's pretty 
pretty awesome job, but you'll sit alert a lot and you'll deploy a lot and you'll go remote a couple of times. <laughs> and I go, okay, we have two kids. Yeah. And <laughs> or I can ask for a C-141 and bring nice presents home. So they said, there's, there's no C-141s in the December, January block. This is a long story to get to a short point. The, so I look, silly me, I look it up in the regulation. And, and it said, assignments are made based on your formal school graduation date. So I graduated November 29th and arrived at Columbus December 3rd. So they were using me in the December, January based on my arrival on station. So I went back to Colonel Isaacson and I said, you know, the book says this. And he just smiled. He goes, have a seat. He calls huh. his, his buddy at the center and goes, is this true? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, well, what does Fry want? He said, 141. He says, he's got it. Cool. What does, what does Westbrook want? He wants an F-16. He got it. He's got it. Yeah. So it, it worked out and I didn't even look back. So, now, yeah. so they said, where do you want to go? I said, Charleston. <laughs> and they went, can't do that. They're 110% man. Yeah. Well, McGuire's four hours from our house. What do you think, Jen? She goes, and they're like 80% man. I said, I'd love to go to McGuire. And they said, how soon can you be there? Cool. So I went to SOS en route. was a distinguished grad there. Went to um, pick up basic, you know, C-141 training. Got there in uh, de December, January of 80, December of 80, yeah. Um, and started to, f to fly the line. Um, Interesting. Six months later, let's see. Yeah, six months later, five months later, I was an aircraft commander. Six months after that, I was an instructor because they could use the previous hours and um, instructor skill set if you will to, to upgrade me so i was the guy that flew a lot of the overseas missions as the instructor training new people to become aircraft commanders now i know for most uh cargo pilots uh it's a pretty stable there's a lot of flying but it's not it's not a hair raising death defying uh job unless unless something happens and then you, <laughs> you had something happen once you want to share that story Actually, twice, and, and I'll tell you about the third part of it. Okay. Um, actually, there were four. But anyway, <laughs> the, 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 the first one was um, phone flowing, flying from McGuire out to Lodges in the Azores. Um, you know where that is, but somebody listening may not. It's 800 miles west of Portugal. And at the time, there's no, it was a, there's no divert fields. <laughs> no, it's it. It's it. So we we land there. Um, it's a it's a Sunday morning, like eight o'clock, and uh, and this is 1980. And uh, we were getting we were taking five. The, the the aircraft had 13 pallet spaces. The first three pallet spaces had 24 duty packs on it going to Germany. So they're all in, at the time you had to fly in your uniform. They were flying in their uniforms. And the next 10 pallets had five fruits and vegetables going to Germany, three um, whole the baggage of their TVs and microwaves and, you know, VCRs and stuff for these 
passengers and then two pallets of their regular baggage. So under the red side seats, they had their one carry-on bag that they could have. So they're sitting in the in the front three sections and the next 10 pallet positions have big pallets in them. And for the people listening, they're about eight by 10 foot and six to eight feet high. Now, so they can't see a whole lot, but they're doing that. So we're all loaded and, and we take off and the, the uh, gear indicates unsafe. And so the normal check is um, don't raise the gear, go back and look through the little window and see if you can tell if there's anything wrong, you know. And so our scanner goes back and looks out and says, sir, the gear broke off. Huh. Now the C-141 has four tires on each side. And so these four tires are hanging by the eight brake lines. <laughs> it's just dangling. And you, you want to slow your speed down for your approach and landing. So the way to do that is get your weight down. So burn off fuel, whatever. And uh, we ask if there was any merchant traffic within 40 miles of lodges. And they said no. And the waves were 10 plus feet. So they didn't think there was any small craft out there. So we went 40 miles off, 10,000 feet. We're airdrop qualified. So we opened the door and we pushed out 10 pallets of stuff into the ocean. Well, that's all well and good. The airplane's much lighter now. We do a couple flybys of the tower and they, they say, yeah, the gear's still hanging there. So they foam the runway and we're coming into land and we don't know what's going to happen to that left main gear. Is it going to collapse under us? Is it going to come off? Is it going to cause us to cartwheel? We, we don't know. And uh, so the security, well, then the military police guys at the time are in their truck on the taxiway filming this. Mm. And remember, it's 1980, so Sony has a Betamax out that people are learning to use as video recording. It's Sunday morning, and by now, and we took off at 10, by now it's, uh, you know, close close to noon. Everybody on the hills around there that had one of those was filming this. Wow. So the safety board had everything they needed after we landed. But we landed 5,000 feet down the runways, came to a stop. We got out, the, the emergency crews took the 24 packs out and then took us to the hospital, uh, the normal thing after an incident. We came back, and it turns out that while the, pe- the loadmasters were pushing these pallets out the back one at a time, they had the, the, the scanner, the assistant engineer, get our bags out of the way, which were strapped down between the people in the front three seat, the front, front three pallet, and threw them in the latrine. Because you didn't want to just throw them out the hatch or something. You never know where they're going to go. And uh, closed the latrine door, and we landed. When we came in after the hospital, we came into billeting, and uh, there's these 24 people in blue jeans and lodges T-shirts. Everybody's dressed the same. And we go, oh, you're the guy's... And they clapped. It was very nice. And they wanted to know, see, since we're all carrying our bags, they wanted to know when they could go out next to the runway and get their bags. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, they're 40 miles out. And I don't know if you remember back in the day, uh, 
there was a Samsonite commercial that would always show them dropping the suitcase from <laughs> yeah, different places. Well, in the 141, if the pallet was under 2,500 pounds, you had to lash it to the one in front of it. So the last pallet was less than that because it, it was just a few bags. Yeah. So they lashed it to the next one. And, and when they went at, when the first pallet went out the back, you lash it so it doesn't swing up from the airflow and hit the doors. So it went out. It swung up a little bit, but was held back. But when this next one went out that it was lashed to, it fell immediately and popped the netting off of this. And the loadmaster yells, wow, that would have meant a great Samsonite commercial. <laughs> These bags are flying all over the place. Oh, man. I don't know if they ever washed up on the shore or whatever, but we we told them, no, we... We drop them out in the ocean. You'll get reimbursed and all of that. But so two years later, I met McGuire still, and uh, I'm upgrading to flight examiner on in the aircraft. And uh, so I'm watching an instructor give a local proficiency sortie to a person that wants to become an aircraft commander, and I'm evaluating him giving that instruction. We do a touch and go, heavyweight, come around, do a three engine go around, come around, do another touch and go, get an unsafe gear indication. Well, we turn out of traffic, tell them, declaring an uh, in-flight problem. We don't know if it's an emergency yet or not. And um, we hear the airplane shudder or feel it shudder. And uh, the scanner again had gone back to look and he goes, Sir, the gear fell off. <laughs> so, what? <laughs> okay. So the gear fell off. We're over, we had turned out over Navy Lakehurst and it had been raining for days. So turns out the accident board could go out there and pull the, the four wheels, the whole truck out of six feet of mud and, and send it to um, with then logistics command. And they did all the x-rays and it was a, it was a design flaw inside the strut. And so they did a quick inspection on a bunch of aircraft and then did a design and replaced it. But we just we just came back around, did a couple of flybys, and we were going to uh, uh, jettison some fuel. But then the 21st Air Force commander, it was the two-star that was the eastern half of the world, if you will, for, for mobility, air, air, mobility Air Command. And... Uh, we saw his car out there on the on the old runway, and he goes. He joins the conversation on the radio, and he says, "I understand the pilot that landed the airplane at Lodges is, is the instructor on this aircraft." <laughs> You're getting a reputation. <laughs> and they said, "Yes, sir, it is. He is." And he goes, "Okay, you know something like good luck. I don't exactly what." He, but we looked down on the next path by, and his, his car's gone. It was a white top car because he was a commander, but we got, okay, I guess he thinks we can handle this. And this time in between there, because of the previous um, problem, we, uh, the emergency procedure for what we did at Lodges wasn't in the book because mm -hmm. it said, if you have one malfunctioning, you raise the other gear, the other main gear. And we said, we don't want to do that because we don't know what's going to happen to the one that's dangling there. Yeah. You know, it, so we rewrote and added that procedure to the book. So when we got to this one, the stand of people are on the radio with us going, well, if it's gone, you probably should raise the other one and just land on the belly with the nose gear. And we went, 
I don't want to tempt fate. We, we were successful the last time. We know how it's going to handle. They go, okay. <laughs> so we landed the same way. The left wing comes down on the ground and it skids to a stop. And they did, they, they fixed, they ended up fixing the airplane. Next ended up ferrying it out to Arizona or somewhere before they took it back to Robbins. But anyway. So you're, you're basically the, uh, the guy that breaks the 141s. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we had, uh, we had a, Oh, when was it? It was two years before ours in 1980 where they had a malfunction and the, and the gear strut separated. Um, so so we used a little bit of that, but they used the same procedure in the book. I'm off at Army Command and General Staff College in 89, November of 89. I'll never forget it. We're, we're there having um, lunch. And my wife said, we don't have cell phones to speak of then. Right. My wife says, you need to call these people at 21st Air Force. I go, why? They said, they have an airplane that's coming from Panama that's supposed to land at Charleston that has the same same gear problem you did. <laughs> what? <laughs> so sure enough, I call them and they said, yeah, I'm going to patch you into the aircraft. Wow. Okay. Well, oh, it was the the first one was one that came out of Antarctica and was coming up to Christchurch, oh, wow. and they 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 figured it out several years before that. Well, this guy's coming back, and I said, well, I'd encourage you to divert to Robbins with a, like a thirteen thousand foot runway, because there's concern you know, your your spoilers won't come past the flight limit and this and that. You go, well, we didn't even think about that, and go, okay, well, so they were very thankful and they landed safely, and I went, I can't escape this instructor flight examiner duty stuff. And I really enjoy teaching. So I'm going to try and keep doing that wherever, wherever the next assignment is. So where, where do you think the, uh, do you think the Academy helped you do this uh, processing of an unusual situation in a, in a somewhat dangerous, precarious predicament and all the stress you, you went through at the zoo, did that help you uh, uh, keep a level head through all this? I, I think it did. I think it did a lot for that. In, 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 uh, and so did, um, if you will, SOS. Because academics at the academy, you never knew when the quiz was coming or you never knew what this was. And I, I never joined the academic pro uh, team. Um, <laughs> so I was a captain of that team. <laughs> I, I applaud you for making it through. You couldn't do that two semesters in a row, or you're really in trouble. Yeah. Um, so, so, but, but when that was never a worry, and then I got into that chemistry, and and I went, wait a minute, I thought I knew all this stuff, and I'm now at the I'm now at the graduate level in these courses because I validated the others. I went, mm, I'm not going to do that again. And and then when I got into the computer math computer ops research side, that was a whole new world. And you just have just have to think differently. Yeah. And and SOS, they well, like the first example at SOS was I didn't know how it worked. Nobody told me if you speak first, they write your name down, going, Oh yeah, he's got initiative, rah, rah, rah. So the first thing they gave us, and there was one other rated guy in there, and he happened to be a one forty one guy. And, and the first thing they gave us is here's 25 things and you're in a survival environment, prioritize these things, everything from a, a gun to whiskey to matches, you name it. And uh, 
So I didn't think anything of it. I, I looked around and nobody's saying anything. Here's the task. And I said, has anybody else had survival training? <laughs> and I see the two instructors start writing stuff down. I went, what are they writing down? And, uh, and, Frank, and Frank, the other guy says, yeah, you know, we, we had to go through that. It's survival at the academy and this and that. And, uh, oh, okay. So you, you, you anticipate questions. And that's how I think I was very successful on, on many staff jobs was you, you answer 10 questions knowing that nine of them will never be asked yeah. by leadership. Um, so, yeah, the, those were true. And being an instructor in 141s and, and C9s and, and T37s, and you, you give people scenarios and force them to think through them. Um, and that's just the way my mind worked. So now but, you, you stayed in the Air Force as a pilot for most of your Air Force career, right? I, I was, but I would say I had about eight almost nine years of the 26 in staff jobs. And that was, uh, and there, at some point you don't get to fly anymore, right? Right. Well, the, the gate system changed a little bit, but you had to fly six of the first 12 years and then yeah. uh, 12 of the 18. And so if you did that, then you got flight beta 25, which is what I ended up doing. Okay. But, but uh, yeah, after I got an internship at, Mac headquarters in in uh, after the C one forty one McGuire, so it, I was there and I noticed that about a third of the people that I normally saw each day all of a sudden in that November December time frame of what is that eighty three weren't at work. Where are these guys? Uh, <laughs> they're planning something. It turned out being Grenada. Oh wow. And, and I go, oh, this is what we do. This is, you know, this is real Air Force now. Yeah. You know, it, it was one thing to train people. It was another thing to train people in 141s and hall supplies, a lot of humanitarian. But now it's, um, now it's real. We're, we're, we're planning this stuff. We plan it. And sure enough, I think this is funny, but it's, it wasn't at the time to the people. The first C-130 that was leading the nine ship into Grenada had all the firepower. It aborted. Oh my. And, and the second aircraft in, all they had was sidearms. And they were supposed to, you know, control the airfield until the rest of them could land. <laughs> well, this didn't work out as planned. So just for me, I wasn't part of the crews or anything. But as as mobility command, we go, this we need to always factor this kind of stuff into it. So critical thinking and that, you know. Scenario thinking, um, I think, paid off a lot, and I learned a lot of that in the various things that happened at the academy. And I, and I think if I re my research is correct, along the way you were racking up degrees every time we turned around. <laughs> I yeah, I ended up with three masters, but um, when at Scott on the staff that that internship, and then they kept me on for two years in personnel to do squadron commander assignments and in and out of school assignments and assignments to the air staff and the agcom staff. So while I'm doing that, they changed the rules and said, people need to 
people that expect to be a flying squadron commander need to have been a formal school instructor. Huh. I went, this is important. Yeah. And, and so at, at the end of my time there, they go, we want to send you back to 141s. Where do you want to go? And I said, Charleston. And they went, well, do you want to be a squadron commander? I go, yeah. And he goes, then you're going to Altus. <laughs> South Carolina, so, Oklahoma, what's the big deal? <laughs> it, was the, it was the best thing ever happened. I mean, <laughs> that family life in Oklahoma was awesome. So, so you, you never made it to Charleston is what I, as I, as I'm looking at this. Only group. to do a bunch of airdrop, you know, and, and, and yeah, yeah. We'd, we'd based out of there for a week at a time, TDY and yeah. fly up to Polk Field and stuff. But while I was at Scott and that personnel job, um, much like many of the others, I got my master's in business administration from Webster University. They came out to the education center, um, you know, night school once or twice a week and, and tests and, I, don't know, I think it was a year and a quarter or so. It was 36 credit hours to get the master's. So we just did that because you were in a staff job and you can do it. Cool. And then 27 years? Yeah, just about 26, eight months, something like that. Yeah. So, and you retired as a colonel. What, what, what was the rationale? I mean, was there, was it up or out or what, what was the deal there? Um, on your question about masters, I went to uh, National War College, and so Tony and I had some interesting sw- snipes at each other. You know, it was like we are the House of Lords, and and he was the House of Commons at I- ICAF. But they covered the curriculum that took us a year to cover. They covered it in six months, and then went out to industry. So back and forth we would go, and then. Everybody, when we had the intramurals, the sports, the competitions, uh, we had to wear our Myers-Briggs four-letter code on us so we knew how to talk to each other. You know, if you're an ISTJ or an ENFP or whatever you were, (laughs) it was really cool to to figure out how to do that. But you get a national security strategy master's by going to that school. I don't know if that was the title of the kind he got at ICAF, but that's... That's what, what I ended up with. Then um, I, I did a, um, coming, out of, coming out of Army Command and General Staff College. Yeah. I, I was supposed to go to Kuwait in June of 90. And uh, huh. that would have been an interesting time. Y- yes, you, you've picked up on that. Yeah, I was... The major general that was the the pro pro it was PRP then it's A eight X A A P now the programming side of the world said, "Now wait a minute, we hired him, and he they said, but he's 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 hot on the majors overseas list, and they said, but he's a lieutenant colonel select. So I was fortunate enough to be three years early, like Greg and Slim and others." Um, we, and they said, ooh, we forgot about that. So they looked and they said, okay, he's going to Jordan or somewhere else. And they went, no, wait a minute. You can't change the rules on it. We hired him and you cleared the hurdle that, that he wasn't going to Kuwait. And so I went to the Pentagon. And then August 2nd, <laughs> Saddam goes across the line. And, I'm, and it would have been a two-year family tour to Kuwait City. 
You know, it was about three days after that that my Navy Reserve outfit, we went on the USS Nimitz for two weeks off the coast of San Diego, and everybody thought we'd gone to the war. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. That was very, yeah. very interesting watching, uh, trying to get CNN on, on a carrier while we're off the coast of San Diego, and they're telling us we're heading heading west, and we're thinking, well, we ought to be home in two weeks and go back to work. <laughs> Reservists don't, don't go to war. Not without a big deal. Yeah. Um, so, so I did the C one forty one squadron commander thing, and I, and it was President Bush in ninety two um, was having a meeting with the I believe the Sultan of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, yeah. and we were doing his support in a one forty one, a lot of calm stuff. Well, we got there and they said, well, they're they're supposed to meet at the Summer Palace down in Jeddah, and we went. So they sent us there, and they decided to that they were going to be in the palace in Riyadh and not come down there, but we, we could support everything from where we were. So we got to stay in the King's palace as the crew. Wow. <laughs> and it was like, okay, it's dinner time. They go, what would you like? Well, can we see a menu? No menu. Just what would you like? Tell us what you want. Yeah. So we're there a couple of days. That that was exciting supporting, supporting him. But how did that no, compare to being the, uh, a professor at the air university? Well, that's an interesting story too. I'm I'm sitting there as the J eight in Southcom with all the congressional stuff, all of the one point some billion dollars with the drug money. We're supporting the counter drug effort, and and uh, the J five was a two star Air Force, so he's the senior Air Force guy down there, and he he calls me in 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 May after being there like a year and seven or eight months, says you're going to uh, the faculty at Air War College. I went, what? <laughs> Corona decision from the previous November was there were no graduated ops group commanders on the faculty there. Um, so you're going, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I went there, got platform. I had lots of instructor experience. So they qualified me as a platform instructor. And again, it was one of those best kept secrets because the, the, my seminar as a seminar leader, the 20 some critical thinking uh, hot people that are in residence, senior PME from all from all the services. In fact, the Marine guy there was a Harrier pilot who um, who got picked to be a Blue Angel. <laughs> and he, he had some fascinating stories. He nickname was Batman. But I mean, just that kind of stuff. And and uh, it was it was exciting. And and that's where because I was in the training command when this uh this 20 year old gentleman was doing the run a makeup run during basic training in week four mm. was 50 yards from the finish line and they have a they have pacers with them got somebody running so they make the time this guy just stopped and sat down on the road and uh he ended up dying wow and so i was the invested board president whatever to to investigate that and uh, the short story is he had an enlarged heart and a whole bunch of stuff and very high blood pressure. And the fact that he was a dependent is the only way we got records to piece it all together. Wow. Uh, so they sent his heart to the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology and they figured out what happened. And uh, that's, that's too bad. It's it's just that kind of work. And as a board president, there was two 141s I had to do. One was at Guam where... 
reserve crew taken off and the wheel came off for, for whatever reason. I know there's a theme there, but the, the other one, <laughs> the, the other one was uh, a crew had taken off out of Windhoek and uh, the West side of, of uh, South Southern part of Africa. Yeah. And they're fully loaded climbing up in the evening, looking into the sun. And there's a German aircraft that was coming in and uh, they, they had a meteor collision at 35,000 feet. And that went right to an accident board. But, but that one was like nine crew members. And uh, I think it was 14 on the German airplane. No, obviously nobody survived. Uh, But the 141 through some overhead imagery, let me call it that. Um, they saw the explosion, and when they found the, the aircraft parts, it, there was a lot of charring from the inside, so they know it exploded and the death was instant. All you heard on the box was emergency decompression, oxygen, 100%, and then it goes silent. Yeah. So, but the, but the German crew, the, the wing got clipped, and came off, so they're kind of in an uncontrollable drop. And mm-hmm. it was over three minutes, and they were on oxygen, talking on the, the cockpit recorder, and you know, saying their prayers. And you know, it just it was tough. They they went to the courts, and if all the families agreed, then they would release that to the families, which they ended up doing. So those are tough ones to do, but you know, be, getting the right training, going out, taking the opportunity, doing what the boss thinks you need to do is do it you know we're our, we're our own worst career planners we need to we need to stay in line with what senior leadership is doing what's best for us and the service i know this is going long but it's just ah. been been uh well now, now let's we can wrap it up real quick did you want to comment any on your gs life the the first thing you notice um I went right into a GS-15 supervisor and did that for 12 plus years. Um, three different division chief jobs and one director job. Um, I, I backtracked to Lieutenant Colonel days when I was on the team in the early 90s with uh, General Lake Peak. And uh, there were six of us on his team in his outer office that were rebuilding the Air Force for four years down the road. You remember those Burroughs 7700 printouts that yeah, we had with the perforations? Uh, he had a book like that with the Air Force at the end of his four-year tour in it. All the bases, all the iron, whether they were going to be one-star commanders, what district they were in. I mean, we were we took 40% out of the Air Force. Wow. We went from like 132 B2s to 75 to 20 you know, we went from 210 C-17s to 120. We went from 800 F-22s down to 376 or whatever it is. And now, and we bought 180 some. So, so we, we did huge cut. We went from 7,000 kernels to 3,300. The last uh, selective early re, uh, retirement board for kernels was like 175 people, 44 of them were below the zone and four of them were sitting wing commanders. We really dug deep. Um, so that helped me learn a lot about how we do future planning. Now that go, and I was on the team a few years later with the General Ryan and we built the eight, what we call the AEF construct. And that has stood the test of time as well. So using that, 
as a GS, as if you will, corporate knowledge. I was in programming stuff for the first eight years, seven years of that. And then I went into business transformation. And then I went into uh, um, the what we call the SAF legislative liaison. So I was the was the division chief for all prep of all the testimony of the top five Air Force people, secretary of the chief and those and um, all the visits by the wing commanders to come to Capitol Hill and visit with their congressmen. Wow. So it was very, very insightful for what they think is important. I really liked, I listened to Tony's story where uh, Ike Skelton was retired at the time that I started, but he's the House Armed Services Committee chair. And to hear that story of him going through every ribbon on Tony's chest, (laughs) I... The guy probably didn't forget any of it. Yeah. You know, and, and so he was so good to the Air Force. Um, I, I didn't know that story till I listened to that. Yeah. But, but I can see how he would do that. And then uh, all the other things that, that come with. Can't make an error when you're talking to those people because the staff will accuse you of lying to them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Now the last the last question, and this is the last topic, is your current uh, or your most recent uh, adventure of being a uh, pastor. Oh yeah, um, while I was was um, let's see, this is two thousand four. Um, I had the opportunity to go through the program while I was commuting home from. We bought a house in 2002 in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, Little League World Series. And and I got into the GS-15 job uh, at the end of 2002. And when I when I was doing that, the what we call the Archdiocese of Washington, the Catholic Archdiocese, said, we think you'd make a good deacon. So it's a five-year program, Monday, Wednesday nights, go through this program. And while you're doing that, if you want to work on your master's in theology, you can do that. So I did all of that. And then um, when I retired 2015, I got a job as a pastoral associate at the church here and lasted about a year and a half. And, and Jen says, you need a job to retire to. <laughs> <laughs> so that's become our mantra. So I applied, went went back down to Shaw, but it was from Army Central. And I was the deputy G6 doing a whole bunch of infrastructure stuff and for the 20 countries of CENTCOM and uh, and then got back up into to the Air Force side and what what I had been in before but it was a new name now SAF MG for management stuff business mm-hmm. management stuff and then uh, I moved I moved uh, last April over into the A1 the personnel side of things and we're basically what we would call an engine room you know if the task comes and it doesn't fit exactly into somebody's manpower or services side we get it <laughs> so right now we're working heavy on uh, diversity um, inclusion racial disparity why there's not many um, uh, various minorities in the ops side but a disproportionate number in the maintenance side and a few other places so yeah you know what causes people to choose which area when they're you know enlisted enlisting into the service or trying to become an operator in the service what what 
propensity that they have to go in the various directions. So that's going to be a, a lifelong thing for for all the services because DOD is doing it with the others as well. Well, so Steve, sounds like you are you're not exactly retiring yet, and you're, uh, and you're nope. still cranking away. I'm not. A, I'm not allowed to, John. I know the, the boss says you got to keep going. I get 45 it. years. I've learned to read the signal. <laughs> well, congratulations on all that. And I'm glad you guys are still together. That's a, that's a really cool story of uh, yeah. two of you. Um, I want to thank you for doing this again. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thanks for asking me. But and, one uh, last thing I would like to mention is it was neat as the GS to go around to classmates that were working in the Pentagon. <laughs> like like Kevin Chilton, you know, he's a one star at the time, then a two star, then he makes four stars and commands um, strategic command. Uh, Mark Welsh, you know, hey, we yeah. pass each other by the bathroom. And he said, hi, Steve. Oh, hi, Mark. You know, I mean, it was and he's a four star and I'm a civilian. Um, Jack Catton, I mean, he got himself in trouble and I we tried to stop it, but he sent out an email supporting a candidate, a classmate candidate for congressional office and you just can't do that. And I know he knew better, but they asked him to re retire. And he, I think he would have been a four star too. But anyway, the, the people you meet at the academy that you stay in touch with, the people you meet in, in PME that you stay in touch with, um, especially at the senior service school, they're gonna be your, your uh, co-workers, if you will, across all kinds of agencies and services. Um, for the rest of your life. I just think people should be aware that people who will be your boss may be working for you later or, you know, your peers may become your boss. And yeah, just right. to be just to be aware that you're always trying to do your best and showing um, summed up by, you know, under promise and over deliver. Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, again, thank Bye. you. No, putting this together for for all of us, it'll be fun to listen to them in five years. Oh, yeah. Or, Again. Or 10, whatever. Yeah. No, we still have our what's about us right now. <laughs> I was trying to beat Tony's time. Did I? Uh, you're getting there. <laughs> oh, I don't want to be. I don't want to beat the two stars time. All right. <laughs>